global value investing through a different lens. Antipodes searches the world for great companies trading at attractive valuations. Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes, a global fund manager with offices in Sydney and London. On Good Value, hear discussions about Antipodes' best investment ideas and perspectives on industry and macroeconomic trends. Hi, it's Alison Savas, Antipodes' client portfolio manager. As many listeners would know, we take what we call a pragmatic approach to value at Antipodes. So unlike traditional value managers that only invest in low multiple stocks hoping for mean reversion, we instead look for companies across the growth spectrum that are mispriced relative to our assessment of their growth and risk profile. Now this explains why two of the largest holdings in our portfolio are Facebook and Microsoft. So in this episode of Good Value, we're going to talk about finding good value in big tech. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Joining me is James Rodder, Portfolio Manager of Consumer and Domestic Services Developed Markets. Welcome, James. Hi, Alison. James, software and internet have been your focus since the inception of Antipodes, and you've been leading the coverage on big US tech names for our team for some time now. I mentioned some of our top holdings, Facebook and Microsoft in our intro. Can you explain how we view their optically high PEs? So look, as you touched on, our fundamental view is that relying on mean reversion as a traditional value investor does is a flawed approach because you risk getting stuck with value traps in a world that's changing rapidly, particularly in the tech space. So we know disruption is real. As a team, we're comfortable operating across the spectrum of growth, including looking at what, what many might view as growth stocks, but ones that are resilient businesses, cheap relative to their growth profiles and cheap relative to their peers. This is, as we say, a pragmatic approach to value. If a company's earnings are growing 20% per annum, it obviously deserves a higher multiple than a company where the earnings are growing at five or 10%. So for us, it's about paying the right price for that growth and the predictability of that growth. Um, Back on Facebook and Microsoft, they're both growing earnings, we think sustainably 15 to 20% per annum. And given that growth profile, 20 to 30 times earnings is not an expensive multiple. James, let's first discuss Microsoft in a little more depth. It's a business everyone knows. Uh, It's entrenched in our everyday lives. Now we've held this stock since Antibody's inception and it's risen almost sixfold. Can you take us through why we think Microsoft remains a compelling investment? For us, I think it comes down to two key points. So firstly, Microsoft has a huge R&D budget for product development. It's around $20 billion per annum, which dwarfs that of any competitors, especially startups. You could say it's an unstoppable force when it comes to product innovation, and we think it's gonna compete in every category of software going forward. The second point is that Microsoft has an unrivaled ability to bundle and cross-sell these products into a very large customer and distributor base globally. This is very powerful because it means Microsoft can give new products away essentially for free or at low marginal cost um, via up-tiering a bundle. And that's a very difficult operating environment for a new competitor uh, that needs to get out into the market, sell and monetize its product very quickly. Office 365 bundles various pieces of software together, as most people will know, at a price point that just can't be replicated by peers. This makes it incredibly hard to disrupt. The average price or average revenue from an office subscriber is still only 15 US dollars a month. 
Um, conversely, if you tried replicating your Office bundle by downloading a bunch of applications, um, so-called best of breed, such as Zoom, Slack, and several others, it uh, would cost you in excess of $100 per month uh, for what's available in 365 bundles today. We think this pricing umbrella gives Microsoft scope to lift its own prices and push uh, customers up to higher revenue tiers. And we can see the average revenue per seat or per user for Microsoft's 365 suite doubling to over $30 during the next decade as the company exercises its pricing power, continues to innovate and add new services to the bundle um, and pushes customers towards higher bundle tiers. And in fact, just last week, Microsoft indicated it will raise its Office 365 business subscription prices in 2022. And this is the first major price change since launch in 2011. And what about Microsoft's cloud infrastructure business Azure, AWS or Amazon Web Services was a natural cloud partner for startups or businesses born in the cloud, like your Netflixes and your Ubers. So how does Azure fit into the picture? Will it always be the number two to AWS? Yep. So back on Microsoft, generally it has Look, two core business. First is the applications business that we mentioned above. The second is IT infrastructure that corporates use to run their business on the back end. So what many listeners may not appreciate is that Microsoft's cloud infrastructure as a service business, Azure, is now 20% of Microsoft's total revenue and 50% of its IT infrastructure revenue. So it's a big business, about 30 billion US dollars of revenue at a run rate and a big driver of Microsoft's growth. Now, while Microsoft's cloud is only about half the size of Amazon Web Services today, when you include Microsoft's on-premise infrastructure business, it's actually a similar size uh, revenue pool to that of Amazon Web Services. So when we talk about the opportunity in cloud, uh, particularly for Microsoft, uh, it's shifting away from being driven in the early days uh, by startups and is now increasingly being driven by enterprises. And so Microsoft has a lock or a very strong market position over that traditional enterprise um, that Amazon probably didn't have just because of the history. So Microsoft's uh, hybrid solutions, which effectively enable its um, its cloud solutions and, and companies on-premise, you know, existing on-premise spend to work very well together, um, position it very well to dominate large enterprises you know, that you'd see in most of the Fortune 500. So at the moment, Azure is growing 45% per annum, uh, which is pretty amazing on the $30 billion race. Uh, Amazon Web Services is growing 35% on, on, a, on a base double that. Um, but even including Microsoft's so-called legacy IT, um, you know, on-prem infrastructure business, it's still growing in excess of 20% on that very high base. Um, and we think that can continue and, and we should look at them as one one, one business unit that's uh, growing very fast and very profitably. Okay, so pull, pull all that together. What would you say to an investor looking at Microsoft today? Um, look, ultimately we have a market leader, uh, a long track record of generating high returns, innovating, um, and a company that's operating at the intersection of cloud and, and the digital transformation megatrends. That's growing earnings at 15% plus per annum. And we have a high degree of confidence that those earnings grow at a similar or greater level. It's on 27 times uh, 23, 23 earnings. This is a 40% discount to its direct peer group um, when we benchmark industry uh, and similar growth profiles. So look, it's cheap relative to its growth pro profile 
and it's definitely cheap relative to smaller single feature peers who actually um, you know, probably have a lot more risk to how their businesses look in, in five or 10 years time. You know, it's pretty amazing that such a quality business is still available at such a large discount relative to, to peers. Now, let's talk about Facebook. It's the largest social media platform, but this is a very dynamic part of the market. Competition has and will continue to pop up. Uh, you know, is Facebook the incumbent at risk of losing share? Yeah, look, in terms of competitive landscape, I think what we have to remember is that the digital advertising pie is growing as digital advertising takes share. We do have more competition for eyeballs, and this won't change, but Facebook and Instagram's aggregate mobile time, which we watch very closely, hasn't ticked down. Indeed, it continues to grow. So when we hear about Facebook um, being disrupted by TikTok or others, um, actually what's happened is they've taken share from smaller apps or added to total time spent on the mobile, not taken time from Facebook or Facebook applications. Um, Facebook broadly has three and a half billion monthly active users, uh, 2.9 billion for core Facebook. Um, and in addition to that big install base, it's worth you know looking at the Facebook family. It has four of the top seven most downloaded apps globally uh, over the last 12 months, being obviously Facebook, but also Instagram, Facebook Messenger, and WhatsApp. Uh, for interest, the other three were TikTok, YouTube, and Zoom. So look, when you consider how much competition there is for space on the mobile, um, and how dynamic social media uh, and, and mobile innovation is. Um, to have four of the top seven is you know, still a very a brilliant result. Um, and it's no wonder Facebook is ranked by most advertisers as the most effective um, platform in terms of return on their advertising dollars still today, despite um, price rises for their, for their ad units. Um, and let's remember also the company on the monetizing basically core Facebook and Instagram, and within that largely only um, the newsfeed and the stories products. WhatsApp is almost completely unmonetized, and we think it's entering a large product cycle where it can, um, with, store, with more, more growth in stories, uh, shopping and payments across Instagram and Facebook, um, new, news as a category, uh, rolling out, and it's rolling out super, a super app in Brazil, in India, via WhatsApp, it's adding lots of, uh, which will come globally, it's adding lots of payment uh, functionality, etc. And Instagram Reels and, and Checkout also continue to grow, grow nicely. Um, so we think there's lots of opportunity here in terms of the base of users and the monetization of those users and cross-selling new services into that sticky user base over time. Can you take us through the trends you're seeing in e-commerce and where Facebook fits into the ecosystem? Sure. Um, look, e-commerce has traditionally been about consumers going online to buy goods and services that they're already looking for. You know, typically, somewhat commoditized goods and services. So we go directly to a site that we already know, may search in Amazon, or we might even use Google. Where we think at the moment, what we've seen, we've seen this actually out of China initially, uh, e-commerce trends are shifting. They're less about buying what we know now to buying what we discover. These purchases are influenced by social media. Um, look, the buzzword for this is social commerce. So Facebook and particularly Instagram are clearly suited to this next leg of e-commerce growth. Um, the power of Facebook and Instagram as an advertising platform is that they're equally valuable to the biggest brands and the smallest unique brands, um, which may need that discovery uh, support. Um, Facebook has lots of rich data about its customers, 
um, which will indeed help them discover what is best, what are the best items to buy as they um, iterate on the product. And let's be clear on top of the, um, you know, on how that product is going. So on top of being a powerful advertising platform for social commerce already, um, Facebook and Instagram shopping were launched you know, under in under a year. They amassed um, over in merchants. It's probably quite a bit larger now already, and 250 million users. Now let's consider this against the fact that Amazon Prime probably has approximately 200 million members all right or worldwide, and that's a and that's been a 20 20 year build. So um, now obviously spend per customer on Facebook and Instagram shopping is obvious is, is a fraction of an Amazon customer at this point in time, but that engagement of users checking out the product, etc., um, does show an ability to cross-sell e-commerce to their 3 billion users, uh, even at this very early stage, and even when there isn't, you know, let's say, a lot of inventory uh, available on that product. So look, overall, we can see the company compounding its earnings at 20% per annum uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, we're paying you know, 20 on a forward basis, uh, 20 times those earnings. Uh, James, you just mentioned the data collection, and one of Facebook's advantages is its ability to collect data. So, you know, privacy and regulatory issues hover around this company, and we all know the Cambridge Analytica debacle. So, so what's your take on regulatory risks? Yep, um, I won't go back into all of the history of it, but we we, we, we do a lot. Uh, we, we think about this a lot with these larger companies, obviously, as as most investors would. Um, Social media, in terms of competition, is very competitive. Um, we sort of discussed above uh, TikTok, but uh, you know, Snapchat, um, Pinterest, LinkedIn in certain categories. Uh, so look, it's a very competitive space. So um, Facebook definitely doesn't have a monopoly over time spent in the in the social market, and definitely in the digital ad market more broadly. So, and this has sort of been tested recently in the US. There's it's probably pretty clear um, there's no sort of monopoly um, which places them at lower risk of you know, being charged um, with any anti-competitive behavior. In terms of the other major test in the US, it's sort of around consumer harm uh, and that's also linked to price. It's services are free. Um, so there's not likely to be any problem there. In terms of privacy, um, we also look at what, we, what, what the companies do um, how much of the costs are potentially already reflected in the PNL? Um, we think Facebook spending more than 10 billion per annum on protecting users has 30,000 people uh, at least monitoring content. Um, changed the product quite a lot to make it as safe as possible. So it's met the regulators' demands head on. When we assess this against peers, it's actually the one that's done the most. Perhaps it needed to, um, but it's very well placed, I think, going, going forward. Um, the other thing with regulation is it's unlikely the regulator is just going to regulate Facebook in any given market. It will regulate all social media or large digital platforms. Um, and certainly in social, uh, other platforms don't have the same firepower to throw at privacy and safety. Uh, in general, what, we, what you tend to see with regulation is that it lifts barriers to entry. And so with more regulation, we think broadly um, that, can, that can suit the existing players potentially. And we think overall regulatory risk to the big big tech in the, you know, the US names are overplayed. And to be frank, when we think about the risks to these large companies, we're actually more concerned about 
evolving digital taxes and things like that globally. Okay, so we've covered two of our biggest holdings when it comes to big tech, two of the most well-known brands in the world. Now, Oracle is a stock that's recently come into the portfolio. You know, it's also a software giant, but it doesn't get the same attention as a Microsoft or as a Facebook. Yep, that's right. Two, uh, $300 billion now, probably, company. Um, look, the core ERP is the last piece of the... Um, of the puzzle to transition to the cloud in a, in a, in a SaaS format or, or start the transition at speed. Um, ERP, enterprise resource planning, this is a software that businesses use to manage uh, a lot of their core day-to-day -day activities. So accounting, recruitment, supply chain management, uh, HR, etc. And so businesses have been reluctant to move this core ERP um, being the, the financial side, the general ledger to the cloud. COVID's triggered, we think COVID's triggered a change in that. Um, and it's difficult to manage your business if the cloud, um, in the cloud overall if and, and remotely if a key piece of your software remains on-premise. So Oracle has the market leading product in SaaS um, ERP as, as assessed by Gartner and you know, almost all independent vendors, independent James. research vendors. Sorry, James. Take us through how you see Oracle evolving. Sure. So, look on the ERP side, you got a ten-year over a ten-year contract. A cloud or subscription-based customer is worth twice, um, twice that of an on-premise customer, or one that you know, traditionally paid for their software upfront with a smaller ongoing um, annual fee. Uh, this transition of Oracle's software product to the cloud is definitely positive for their revenue growth. Uh, on top of that. Our analysis shows that transitioning to the cloud potentially significantly increases Oracle's likely customer base given its product lead in this space. Oracle's customer base has typically been the world's largest companies, uh, but a subscription-based cloud service is much more affordable to smaller enterprise. Uh, they have you know, tailored products for that customer set, uh, and it comes with all the upgrades and support um, doesn't need as much customization uh, that supports that market. So look, we see Oracle taking share in ERP uh, as, as its products shift to the cloud. Um, we all know the markets, I guess, can be backward looking. Over the last decade, Oracle's revenue has been stuck at flat to low single digit revenue growth. Uh, over the last six months, we've seen it's potentially reaching an inflection point. Cloud ERP is now growing more than 40% per annum. It's now probably 10% of the applications business. Um, with the growth coming from new and existing customers in uh, competitive tenders. So the growth, we think the growth rate in cloud ERP can take Oracle's overall earnings growth from low single digit to high single digit. Um, we're potentially close to that hockey stick moment you get at around 15% penetration. But two thirds of Oracle's business is still the on-premise databases. So are cloud players like Microsoft and Amazon and even new technology, are they just going to be a threat? That's a good question. Um, look, the market's definitely taken the view that Oracle's database business is going to zero, um, which is fascinating given their product is more focused on, say, the transaction side of database rather than analytics, where most of the database market disruption is occurring. Um, their database business is growing low single digits, as mentioned above with ERP, it's also independently assessed as being the best product on the market. Uh, interestingly, it's always been at a price premium versus peers, 
Oracle now prices it essentially equally versus those peers. Um, and despite that, it's still not showing any signs of decay on a, on a revenue basis. So we think there's some underlying growth there. Um, in terms of shifting to the cloud, Oracle hasn't got its head in the sand. Um, it's developed its own cloud database and infrastructure as a service solution to compete with Microsoft and Amazon. And over time, Oracle will convert some customers to its cloud solution. And this can act as a revenue driver. Just keep in mind that for a traditional infrastructure as a service uh, customer, uh, database might be less than 10% of revenue. So they only need a very small portion of their installed base of database customers to switch to their infrastructure as a service business. Uh, and it can generate quite nice uh, revenue growth. The other thing to note is their product now also works very well on these um, other cloud infrastructure providers um, platforms, uh, which is another positive and will encourage customers to stay and or increase adoption of uh, Oracle's database. Um, the market's viewed Oracle as a, as a value trap, definitely. It's just starting over the last few months to notice the opportunity in cloud ERP um, and perhaps the duration of the database business, or we although we still don't think the change there is as recognized um, as what it, what it should be. It's an incumbent platform that looks cheap relative to its growth rate. Uh, it's 19 times earnings with a 5% free cash flow yield, highly resilient earnings, um, continues to buy back stock. It's announced another $20 billion buyback program earlier this year, which is about another 10% of the company's market cap. Um, so overall, with a, you know, expected tick up in, in growth, we think, uh, you know, sub 20 multiple looks quite attractive. Now, James, we can't talk about big tech without discussing Amazon and the way it's disrupted the broader retail landscape. We know prior to COVID that e-commerce was around 15% of sales, retail sales in the US, and it quickly shot up to around 22% thanks to lockdown. And Amazon has been the winner. You know, it has almost 40% of the US e-commerce market and it is much bigger than its next largest online competitor. Um, putting market share into perspective, it's still staggering. So Amazon has around 10% of the total US retail market. Uh, Walmart, which is America's largest retailer, has 14%. Uh, so Amazon's got to a very similar size, but without any physical stores. Um, so Amazon's dominance in e-commerce comes down to its investments as made in several areas like logistics, um, so this is you know, warehouses, um, software in those warehouses, robots, trucks, planes. Uh, they increasingly control their whole logistics chain right up to last mile delivery, um, which has enabled basically better better speed to market for its for its customers and a better product solution. It's also improving continually improving price and breadth of choice for customers, uh, and gives customers further further benefits from its Prime membership program. Um, in addition, Prime allows the company to connect rich uh, data on its customers, which translates into better inventory management, faster delivery times, better business decisions, etc. And of course, now a very nice advertising business as well. Um, to give you some examples about where this comes into um, competitive advantage, so Amazon's delivery cost, we think, has now fallen to around $2.50 per parcel, which is on par or perhaps slightly below uh, the US Postal Service, which is quite remarkable given um, you know, the density of that product. Uh, and for context, 
uh, it's a few dollars less than private providers like UPS or FedEx that most of their competitors uses. Uh, it's why Amazon you know, pushes providing free same-day delivery on orders, um, $35 and above, and free delivery on you know, all orders um, on that traditional uh, two-day window. Um, and Amazon's pushing this further. So this delivery edge is um, very important to Amazon's future success in the extent, and the, the risk would be that competitors can narrow it. What we see is it's kind of moving the other way. So Amazon took a lot of market share several years ago when they moved to a two-day delivery window. They're now pushing both same-day and one-day delivery. They're now, um, during COVID, they, they sort of lost uh, the ability to do same day and one day, uh, given the demands on the on the infrastructure that they have or the logistics infrastructure, they're now back offering um, same day in certain locations. I think with up to six delivery slots, uh, and one day delivery is now available across 18% of the population. This is growing pretty quickly. So, delivery speed, market share correlate. So we expect gains as first as one day and, and same day uh, delivery. Um, continue to get built out, particularly in those sort of core commoditized products. Um, the reality is by doing this, Amazon sets the bar very high for any online retailer and becomes incredibly difficult to compete with. So Amazon is a winner in the shift to online, but there will be other winners too, and there will be losers as well. So how does digital transformation affect the way you look at consumer businesses more broadly? Is it too late for traditional retailers that haven't already made the investment to develop an online presence? Look, certainly the approach we take with all our consumer-facing businesses is that they must be a winner from digital change. That's what we that's what we really want to see. Um, speaking for retailers specifically, it's going to be challenging for say uh, traditional department stores and especially retailers that don't have a great online strategy to win back uh, mind share, particularly for those businesses that spent cash on share buybacks and things like that instead of digital investment. On the flip side, there are plenty of winners uh, in the traditional retail space. It's a big market um, and companies that have made the transition. So we own, uh, for example, UK supermarket Tesco. Uh, it's not new to online. Tesco.com was launched uh, over 20 years ago, around, around 2000. The UK is more densely populated than the US, which is um, helpful for running a profitable online grocery business. And Amazon hasn't made any real inroads into the UK grocery just yet. Uh, Tesco is the market leader in the UK uh, grocery market. Um, and their 30% share of online grocery is several points better than their in-store share, which means that basically as the uh, grocery market shifts online, it's market share accretive uh, to Tesco. Much like Walmart, um, and someone like Woolworths at home, Tesco's leaning into existing store assets, investing in fulfillment centers attached to large stores, and using existing stores to fill online orders. Um, overall, we expect Tesco to be a market share winner as a result of change in the way consumers purchase their groceries, um, but it's on 11 times earnings and a 9% free cash flow yield. So it's not priced for success in an online world, the way companies like a, a Walmart probably um, which, which we respect a lot, but it's probably priced for that success. Uh, Tesco and you know, that 11 times earnings, 9% free cash flow yield is not. 
So as a pragmatic value manager, is there a place in the portfolio for a Tesco and an Amazon? Absolutely. Um, look, Tesco's, as we just sort of mentioned, Tesco's value proposition is that it's a market leader, will continue to take share given the investment it's made in its uh, online offer. And its market share is, you know, higher offline. So as um, online, well, than it is offline. So as its online share grows, um, sorry, as online grows as a as a portion of um, grocery spend, it takes it takes share, and it's cheap relative to those global peers that we mentioned, like uh, Walmart or Woolworths, on that nine percent free cash flow yield. It's currently a two percent position. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum. Amazon, we think, has an unassailable lead in e-commerce. That uh, business is still growing um, uh, in the teens, even even lapping uh, tough tougher comps from COVID. And the company continues to invest in logistics to reinforce that market position. On top of this, it's cloud infrastructure business. Amazon Web Services is still growing over 30% per annum, and a meaningful part of the company. Uh, so essentially, it's the largest player in two mega trends. It's valued on 23 times our 2023 core PE uh, and earnings growing you know, in excess of 20% per annum. It's worth pointing out that when we talk about core PE, all we're doing is we're stripping out uh, investments uh, for early stage businesses that we think you know, one day will bear fruit, um, but currently make the P&L uh, look worse than it is at the moment. So we think you know, 23 times that underlying core earnings, um, Amazon, uh, is, is great value, has a place in a you know, pragmatic value portfolio. Uh, we also have around 2% in that company. James, it's been great to chat. Um, look, there's no doubt tech is an exciting place to invest and you've given us some great examples of how we identify value in the tech space. But with all the hype around tech stocks, investors need to be wary of growth traps, don't they? Uh, now, when we talk about a growth trap, um, it's a company that's unable to grow its earnings fast enough to justify its elevated multiple. Inevitably, the growth rate will disappoint, the market derates the stock, and that's when you lose capital. And we have seen this before, interestingly, um, with a company like Microsoft. It was a growth trap in the late 90s, where it ultimately got to 80 or 90 times earnings, and then the tech bubble burst. And then it spent the next decade derating. And this was despite Microsoft's earnings continuing to grow. You know, the reality was 80 times was just never the right starting multiple. Can you see a similar scenario playing out here, James? Yes, um, definitely the enthusiasm around tech stocks at the moment. Uh, we can see plenty of growth traps in the market today. Um, maybe one to, that is quite relatable is Zoom. Uh, so market cap now in excess of $100 billion, around 20 million paid subs. So that works out to be about $5,000 um, per, per seat. Um, in those seats generating about $15 uh, revenue per, per month on average. Now if you compare this to Microsoft, uh, Office 365 includes Teams as one product uh, within that that package gives you a similar, if not identical, video calling functionality. Uh, now, look, the implied value on the average Office 365 customer, uh, so we sort of think it's worth $600 billion of the Microsoft market cap, 300 million paid subs is just $2,000 per customer. So you have to ask, is a Zoom customer worth two and a half times 
an Office 365 customer. Um, Google and Microsoft have, let's call it 99% of the productivity application market between them. Microsoft, 87%, Google, perhaps 12%. They're now giving you know, credible alternatives to, both of them are giving very credible, strong alternatives to Zoom uh, with products that have now reached product parity for free in those bundles, um, no marginal cost. With Zoom, you also have a stock where you need the revenue base to multiply by three or four times to even break even on the stock. Um, so we, against that backdrop of needing to grow three or four times, we have um, more credible customers than they were at the advent of COVID. And we potentially have um, you know, COVID winding down, if you like, which begs the question, how many incremental buyers are there for a product like Zoom that aren't already using Zoom and paying for Zoom now that might start to use Zoom over the next two years uh, as COVID subsides? How many existing users of Zoom are there that are using it now during the COVID period um, that will, will churn that product as COVID, COVID subsides? So this is one example. Um, in, the, in the tech space, generally, we don't see, see value in these, um, let's call them category killer, single feature businesses that are price perfection. We think overpaying for growth here can prove very costly, as particularly as the larger platforms like Microsoft and, and, a, and a couple of others um, move into um, you know, a lot of these single feature uh, product categories. James, thank you so much for your time. That brings us to the end of yet another episode. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on and we'll be back again in a few weeks. In the meantime, keep up to date with our thinking at antipodespartners.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.